Chapter One of An Amiable Charlatan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. An Amiable Charlatan by E. Phillips Oppenheim. Chapter One The Man at Stefano's. The thing happened so suddenly that I really had very little time to make up my mind what course to adopt under somewhat singular circumstances. I was seated at my favorite table against the wall on the right-hand side in Stefano's restaurant, with a newspaper propped up before me, a glass of hock by my side, and a portion of the plat du jour, which happened to be chicken en casserole, on the plate in front of me. I was, in fact, halfway through dinner when, without a word of warning, a man who seemed to enter with light-footed speed that, considering his size, was almost incredible, drew a chair towards him and took the vacant place at my table. My glass of wine and my plate were moved with smooth and marvelous haste to his vicinity. Under cover of the tablecloth, a packet, I could not tell what it contained, was thrust into my hand. Sir, he said, raising my glass of wine to his lips, I am forced to take somewhat of a liberty. You can render me the service of a lifetime. Kindly accept the situation." I stared at him for a moment quite blankly. Then I recognized him, and transferring at once the packet to my trousers' pocket, I drew another glass towards me, and poured out the remainder of my half-bottle of hock. So much, at any rate, I felt I had saved. "'I shall offer you presently,' my self-invited guest continued, with his mouth full of my chicken, "'the fullest explanation. I shall also ask you to do me the honor of dining with me. I think I am right in saying that we are not altogether strangers.' I know you very well by sight, I told him. I have seen you here several times before with a young lady. Exactly, he agreed. My daughter, sir. Then, for the sake of your daughter, I said with an enthusiasm that was not in the least assumed, I can assure you that, whether as host or guest, you are very welcome to sit at my table. As for this packet, keep it for a few moments, my young friend, the newcomer interrupted. Just while I recover my breath, that is all. Have confidence in me. Things may happen here shortly. Sit tight, and you will never regret it. My name, so far as you are concerned, is Joseph H. Parker. Tell me, you are facing the door. Someone has just entered. Who is it? A stranger, I replied. A stranger to this place, I am sure. He is tall and dark. He is a little lantern-jawed, a hatchet-shaped face, I should call it. My man right enough, Mr. Joseph H. Parker muttered. Don't seem to notice him particularly, he added, but tell me what he is doing. He seems to have entered in a hurry, I announced, and is now taking off his overcoat. He is wearing, I perceive, a bowler hat, a dinner jacket, the wrong-shaped collar, and he appears to have forgotten to change his boots. That's Cullen, all right, Mr. Joseph H. Parker groaned. You're a person of observation, sir. Well, I've been in tighter corners than this, thanks to you. Who is Mr. Cullen, and what does he want? I asked. Mr. Cullen my guest declared, sampling the fresh bottle of wine which had just been brought to him, is one of those misguided individuals whose lack of faith in his fellows will bring him some time or other to a bad end. My young fellow, sip that wine thoughtfully, don't hurry over it, and tell me whether my choice is not better than yours. Possibly, I remarked with a glance at the yellow seal, your pocket is longer. By the by, your friend is coming toward us. It is not a question of pocket, Mr. Parker continued, disregarding my remark. It is a question of taste and judgment. Discrimination is perhaps the word I should use. Now, in my younger days, eh, what's that? The person named Cullen had paused at my table. 
His hand was resting gently upon the shoulder of my self-invited guest. Mr. Parker looked up and appeared to recognize him with much surprise. "'You, my dear fellow!' he exclaimed. "'Say, I'm delighted to see you, I am sure. But would you mind, just a little lower with your fingers? Too professional a touch altogether.' Mr. Collins smiled, and from that moment I took a dislike to him. A dislike that did much towards determining the point of view from which I was inclined to consider various succeeding events. He was by no means a person of prepossessing appearance. His cheeks were colorless, save for a sort of yellowish tinge. His mouth reminded me of the mouth of a horse. His teeth were irregular and poor. Yet there was about the man a certain sense of power. His eyes were clear and bright. His manner was imbued with the reserved strength of a man who knows his own mind and does not fear to speak it. "'I'm sorry to interrupt you at your dinner, Mr. Parker,' he said, his eyes traveling all over the table as though taking in his appointments and condition. "'Of no consequence at all,' Mr. Parker assured him. "'In fact, I have nearly finished. "'If you are thinking of dining here, "'let me recommend this chicken en casserole. "'I have tasted nothing so good for days.' "'Mr. Cullen thanked him mechanically. "'His mind, however, was obviously filled with other things. "'He was puzzled. "'You must have a double about this evening, I fancy,' he remarked. "'I could have sworn I saw you coming out of a certain little house "'in Adam Street not a couple minutes ago. "'You know the little house I mean.' "'Mr. Parker smiled. "'Seems as though that double were all right,' he said.' I am halfway through my dinner, as you can see, and I'm a slow eater, especially in pleasant company. Shake hands with my friend, Mr. Paul Wamsley, Mr. Cullen. My surprise at hearing my own name correctly given was only equaled by the admiration I also felt for my companion's complete and absolute assurance. Mr. Cullen and I exchanged a perfunctory handshake, which left me without any change in my feelings towards him. Another of my mistakes, I suppose, Mr. Cullen said quietly. I am afraid on this occasion, however, that I must trouble you, Mr. Parker. An affair of a few moments only. I won't even suggest Bow Street, at present. If you could take a stroll with me, even into Luigi's office would do. Mr. Parker put down his knife and fork with a little gesture of irritation. His broad, good-natured face was for the moment clouded. Say, Colin, he remonstrated. Don't you think you're carrying this a bit too far, you know? There isn't a man I enjoy a half-hour's chat with more than you. But in the middle of dinner, dinner with a friend, too. I try to do my duty, Mr. Cullen interrupted, and I am afraid that I am not at liberty to study your comfort. Mr. Parker sighed heavily. Do you mind, Walmsley, having my plate kept warm and reminding the man that I ordered asparagus to follow? My new friend remarked as he rose to his feet. Mr. Cullen wants a word or two with me in private, and Mr. Cullen is a man who will have his own way. I nodded as indifferently as possible, and the two men walked off together towards the entrance. Then I summoned my waiter. Bring me, I ordered, a fresh portion of chicken, and order some asparagus to follow. Keep my friend's chicken warm, and order him some asparagus also. Leaning back in my chair, I tried to puzzle out the probable meaning of this somewhat extraordinary happening. My acquiescence in the attitude that had been so suddenly forced upon me was owing entirely to one circumstance. Mr. Joseph H. Parker I had recognized at his first entrance as a regular habouté of the restaurant. He was usually accompanied by a young lady who, from the first moment I had seen her, had produced an effect upon my not-too-susceptible disposition for which I was wholly unable to account, but which was the sole reason why I had given up my club and all other restaurants and occupied that particular place for the last fortnight. I had put the two down as an American and his daughter traveling in England for pleasure, and my continued presence at the restaurant was wholly inspired by the hope that some opportunity might arise by means of which I could make their acquaintance. Adventures, in the ordinary sense of the word, had never appealed to me. 
I was privileged to possess many charming acquaintances among the other sex, but not one of them had ever inspired me to anything save the most ordinary feelings of friendship and admiration. The opportunity I desired had now apparently come. I had made the acquaintance of Mr. Joseph H. Parker, made it in an unceremonious manner, perhaps, but still under circumstances that would probably result in his being willing to acknowledge himself my debtor. I had a packet of something belonging to him in my pocket, which was presumably valuable. His friend, Mr. Cullen, I detested, and the reference to Bow Street puzzled me. However, I had no doubt that in a few minutes everything would be explained. Meantime, I permitted myself to indulge in certain very pleasurable anticipations. In the course of about a quarter of an hour, Mr. Joseph H. Parker reappeared. He came down the room humming a tune, and apparently quite pleased with himself. I took the opportunity of studying his personal appearance a little more closely. He was not tall, but he was distinctly fat. He had a large double chin, but a certain freshness of complexion and massiveness about his forehead relieved his face from any suspicion of grossness. He had a large and humorous mouth, delightful eyes, and plentiful eyebrows. His iron-gray hair was brushed carefully back from his forehead. He gave one the idea of strength, notwithstanding the disabilities of his figure. He smiled contentedly as he seated himself once more at my table. Really, he began, I scarcely know how to excuse myself, Mr. Walmsley. However, thanks to you, we can now dine in comfort. Until now, I fear I have taken your good offices very much for granted. But I assure you, it will give me the greatest pleasure to make your closer acquaintance, and to impress upon you my extreme sense of obligation. You are very kind, I replied. By the by, might I ask how you know my name? My young friend, Mr. Parker said, eyeing with approval the fresh portion of chicken that had been brought him, it is my business to know many things. I go about the world with my eyes and ears open. Things that escape other people interest me. Your name is Mr. Paul Walmsley. You are one of a class of men that practically doesn't exist in America. You have no particular occupation that I know of, save that you have a small estate in the country, which no doubt takes up some of your time. You have rooms in London, which you occupy occasionally. You probably write a little. I have noticed that you were fond of watching people. You seem to know a great deal about me, I confessed, a little taken aback. I am not far from the mark, am I? You are not, I admitted. As regards your lack of occupation, Mr. Parker went on, I am not the man to blame you for it. There are very few things in life a man can settle down to nowadays. To a person of imagination, the ordinary routine of the professions and the ordinary curriculum of business life is a species of slavery. We live in over-civilized times. There seems to be very little room anywhere for a man to gratify his natural instincts for change and adventure. I murmured my acquiescence with his sentiments, and my companion paused for a few minutes, his whole attention devoted to his dinner. Might one inquire, I asked after a brief pause, as to your own profession. You are an American, are you not? I am most certainly an American, Mr. Parker assented. In business? I asked. Mr. Parker looked round. Our table was comparatively isolated. I am an adventurer, he replied mysteriously. I stared at him and repeated the word. He beamed pleasantly upon me. An adventurer! My daughter, whom you have seen here with me, is an adventuress. We live by our wits, and we do pretty well at it. Sometimes we live in luxury. Sometimes we are up against it good and hard. The writs one day, you know, and Bloomsbury the next. But lots of fun all the time. I looked at him a little blankly. To a certain extent, I suppose you are joking, I asked. To no extent at all, he assured me. By the by, as regards that packet, would you mind just slipping it under this newspaper? I withdrew it from my pocket and obeyed him at once. Mr. Parker's fingers seemed to play with it for a moment, and I noticed at that moment what a strong and capable hand he seemed to have, 
with fingers of unusual length and suppleness. A dark-faced maitre d'hôtel, who presided over our portion of the room, came up smiling, with an inquiry as to our coffee. He exchanged a casual sentence or two with Mr. Parker, bowed, and passed on. Mr. Parker, a moment later, with a little smile, lifted the newspaper. The packet had disappeared. He noticed my look of surprise, and seemed gratified. A mere trifle that, he declared, I can assure you that I could have taken it out of your pocket, if I had desired, without your feeling a thing. Wonderful, I murmured, feeling distinctly uncomfortable. Just a gift, he continued modestly. We all have our talents, you know. I have ordered some special coffee. I was beginning to think rapidly now. By the by, I asked, what is Mr. Cullen's profession? He is a detective, Mr. Parker answered without hesitation, and to my mind a singularly bad one. For two months he has had what they call his eye on me. Between ourselves, I think he will have his eye on me still in another two months' time. I am sure I hope so, for I frankly admit that half the savor of life would be gone if my friend, Mr. Cullen, were to finally give me up as a bad job and leave me alone. I suppose that something of what I was feeling was reflected in my face. I had always considered myself a man of the world, and I was interested enough in my fellows to enjoy mixing with all classes. You are thinking? My friend began softly. Your friend, I interrupted, has just entered the restaurant. He is coming towards this table. Mr. Parker's expression never changed. Not a muscle twitched. His tone was even careless. Just as well, perhaps, he remarked, that we worked that little conjuring trick. The detective stood once more at our table. My instinctive dislike of him was now an accomplished thing. I hated his smile of subdued triumph, and all my fundamental ideas as to law and order were seriously affected by it. I was distinctly on the side of my new acquaintance. I'm sorry to interrupt this little feast, Mr. Cullen said, but I shall have to trouble you both to come with me for a short time. Mr. Parker carefully clipped the end of his cigar and leaned back in his chair while he lit it. My friend Cullen, he remonstrated, I have no objection to offering myself up as a victim to your superabundant energy and trotting about with you wherever you choose, but when it comes to dragging my friends into it, I just want to say right here that I think you are carrying things a little too far. Just a little too far, sir. If either of you seriously object to my request, Mr. Cullen replied doggedly, I can put the matter on a different basis. Who is this friend of yours, and why should we go anywhere with him? I asked. Mr. Parker shook his head mournfully. You may well ask, he sighed. You may not think it, to look at his ingenuous and honest expression, but the fact, nevertheless, remains that Mr. Cullen is a misguided but zealous member of the Sherlock Holmes fraternity. In short, a detective. I rose to my feet with some alacrity. Anything in the shape of an adventure, I began. Not much adventure about this, Mr. Parker interrupted gloomily, brushing the ashes from his waistcoat and also rising. We are probably going to be searched for spoons. However, if it must be... For the first time in my life, I walked side by side with the detective. He led us to the far end of the restaurant, into an apartment usually used by the manager as a wine-tasting office, and carefully closed the door behind us. Outside, I caught the glimmer of a policeman's helmet. Every precaution taken, you perceive, Mr. Parker remarked. In case we should turn out to be desperate characters and, appalled by the fear of discovery, should be driven to make a personal attack upon Mr. Cullen, a myrmidon of the law is lurking nearby. Under those circumstances, I shall eschew violence. I shall submit myself peaceably to a second examination. I found the affair on the whole interesting. I divested myself only of my coat and waistcoat, and Mr. Cullen's fingers did the rest. Only a single and momentary frown betrayed his disappointment as, ten minutes later, he unlocked the door. Gentlemen, he said, 
I owe you my most profound apologies. That's all right, Cullen, Mr. Parker observed, patting him on the shoulder. But let's have this thing straight now. Are we to be allowed to finish our dinner in peace, or will you be turning up again with a new idea? And if I take a box for the Travoli presently, shall we have the pleasure of seeing you bob in upon us? So far as my present intentions are concerned, Mr. Cullen remarked grimly, you may rely upon remaining undisturbed. I am sorry, Mr. Walmsley, he added, turning to me, to have been the cause of any annoyance to you this evening. My advice to you is, if you wish to escape these inconveniences through life, to avoid the society of people whose character is known to the police. I shall get you for libel yet, Cullen, Mr. Parker declared, pulling down his waistcoat. What I've done to annoy that man I can't imagine, he went on impersonally. Mine, he practices on me. I'm convinced of it. Mr. Cullen left us abruptly and quitted the restaurant. I returned to our table with my new friend. Really, he said, I scarcely know how to apologize to you, Mr. Walmsley. This sort of thing amuses me as a rule, but I must admit that Mr. Cullen is apt to get on one's nerves. A well-meaning man, mind, but unduly persistent. I resumed my seat at the table. I was feeling a little dazed. Opposite, talking to two ladies, was the smooth-faced maitre hotel, into whose keeping I felt sure that packet had gone. Seated by my side was the gentleman who had assured me with the utmost self-possession that he was an adventurer. And, standing in the doorway, looking at us, was the girl, who for the last few weeks had monopolized all my thoughts, who had played havoc to such a complete extent with the principles of my life that, for her sake, I was at that moment perfectly willing to range myself among the outcasts of the world. End of chapter 1 Recording by Todd